I'm Andrew Zaki. This is the From the Pews podcast, where we have conversations about truth, culture, love, and power from a Christian perspective. The following is a conversation with Fadi Shahada, philanthropist, tech entrepreneur, former CEO and president of ICANN, and current co-CEO of Ethos Capital. Okay, Fadi, I'm so honored that you're joining me today. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Happy Thank to you. Be here. Uh, Fadi, in preparing for this discussion, I did a deep dive into YouTube, and I only found one talk from you uh, in a church setting. That was the Hope Leadership Summit. And in that video, you mentioned that it was actually only your second uh, kind of church talk since 2008. Uh, why is that? Um, in 2008, I lost my dear brother to a, um, to a heart attack. Uh, he was 54 and he disappeared. Uh, and uh, Adil was a um, very thoughtful, very deep servant in the church. And uh, he um, chose to speak very little about the life uh, he was living. Uh, but he was such a disciplined and committed servant that when he passed, I decided to um, just to, to be one with him, to continue uh, feeling his presence with me, to actually switch a little bit to his mode of service, which was very, uh, very much in the background, very quiet. And he did it with grace, with commitment, and with faith that uh, I have a lot to learn from. And so I stepped away from speaking a little bit, which was mm -hmm. my mainstay as a Sunday school servant. Right. And, uh, it was just my way of remembering him. Yeah. And I feel a, a lot of Christians do fall into that pattern of uh, feeling service has to be kind of loud and uh i don't want to use the word active because uh but that that's kind of the first one that comes to mind um how do you how do you maintain uh a life of service with with without being in the in the foreground um mm -hmm. by believing that every action we take however simple it is however mundane it is, is an expression of our um, belief. You know, so it, it could be, I remember when I was a little kid, someone telling me I was maybe 14, 
saying, even when you brush your teeth in the morning, because I didn't have a good habit of brushing my teeth as I should every morning and evening. He mm-hmm. said, even when you brush your teeth every day, you should do it out of love for the next person you'll meet, because if you brush <laughs> your teeth, you'll have a, a cleaner breath and you won't bother the other person. Yeah. <laughs> it's a silly small thing, but I can't. Uh-huh. You know, truly, if we take every action we do, how we take care of our health, how we manage our money, how we contribute to our work environment, how we pray, how we exercise, how we take care of ourselves, how we entertain ourselves, how we manage the environment in these ESG days, you know, uh, how we keep contact with our friends. how we live our faith. Every one of these things could be an expression of deep commitment to our faith that does not need words. Right. There is a place for words. There's a place and time to profess uh, one's commitment to one's faith. But there are also so many ways to live our faith that are much quieter. In right. fact, I will tell you this because you'll enjoy this. I. Uh, I had uh, in my business a huge breakthrough deal that I completed successfully. And so I wanted to, quote unquote, reward myself with a little rest after this big, Mm -hmm. took me almost a year. So I went with a friend of mine from the Coptic church here in LA, and we both went to a monastery in France where the monks spent decades there and never talk. They give their speaking as a a gift to the Lord for uh, everything else they get. They only sing at church. And my first reaction was to my friend, I don't think I can last a week. (laughs) (laughs) I said, I'm not sure I can last a day. (laughs) But uh, it's beautiful. So. Here, these people spend all their life expressing right. their love in quietness. Right. On the contrary, though, in your professional career, you do speak a lot. And I've seen many uh, public lectures that you've given, keynote speeches, interviews you've done, panels you've been on. And, uh, you know, you've even testified before committees of, of Congress and, and the Senate. Um, does that come naturally to you, um, that kind of uh, public speaking? Or every time are you kind of filled with those butterflies and have to prepare? And are you agonizing? Or, because on the outside, you, you look quite natural doing it. I know. I, it, in, in fairness, yes, it, it comes very naturally to me. I, have, mm-hmm. uh, I, I typically don't prepare my, my, my uh, notes or my speech uh, kind of comments, you know, it, I think through it and I, um, I internalize the audience more than anything else. I think of who I have the privilege of addressing mm-hmm. and I try to understand them and actually ensure that when I speak, I speak for them, for their, for their to lift them into whichever subject I am delivering. So for me, it's quite a, it's an exercise. I don't view speaking as an act. It's an exercise to respect and love the people 
who are giving you time to listen. Um, now, does that mean I should over-prepare? So when I was at ICANN, for example, uh, I had a chief of staff and a team that would typically prepare my speaking notes. Uh, but after about a year, they gave up on me reading any of these. <laughs> uh, and they said, fine, you know, but at least, you know, uh, here are some key points for you to cover. Mm -hmm. uh, but speaking is uh, an act of connection, of deep human connection. Um, and even if I am speaking and people are in an audience listening, I actually always view it as a dialogue, even if people are not speaking. So I, I never call it speaking, yeah. I call it dialogue, you know? Are you, are you looking at body language or like, oh, what, are you, what are you looking at? Oh, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Very important. And I typically try to arrive early to also spend time with the people in the audience as much as I can, share mm. hands, meet people. Right. Suddenly it's for me a human connection, not a pew, um, you know, where I'm standing behind some, some podium or something and just addressing people. It's much more of a dialogue, a human dialogue. I noticed the. Uh you're very positive in, in all of your, your lectures. And even when you were um, before, I forget which committee in Congress or the Senate, um, you were talking about each point that, each point of feedback um, that you were getting from, I think, a few of the senators. And you were like kind of making a point to reaffirm that it was a good idea. So over, overall, it just seems like your approach is to um, kind of find a common ground um, mm -hmm. uh, with your audience as well. It is. It is very much so. You see, listening is an act of love uh, more than anything else. Listening also allows you to create a connection with the other person, whatever their intentions are. You actually create a, a human bridge um, by listening and acknowledging every point they made. And being responsive to the things on their mind. Mm -hmm. when, when you speak to people and all you're thinking about is what you want to convince them of, you often fail. But if you engage with people and you first listen to what's on their mind and make them appreciate that you are listening and one with them in their concerns, I mean, those senators in that case, for example, were genuinely concerned uh, about some things. And I understood that my subject was technical. And mm -hmm. they, some of them may have been completely out of depth. And so I had a duty as an expert on the subject to accompany them in that learning process. So I take that very seriously. And it frankly has helped me with leaders, presidents, CEOs, and most importantly, you know, sometimes the nine-year-olds in my Sunday school class. <laughs> they, right. they, they also need to be heard. Yeah. Uh, and it's a, you know, um, my dad had always this funny point about uh, understanding each other. And he would say, just think about the word understand standing under the other person is the first thing you do mm. allowing them to feel that they're the center of the dialogue 
standing under, not above, not on the podium, right. not on your resume, not on your knowledge, but rather standing under the power of the human connection we can have. Yeah, a lot of people, a lot of people start uh, dialogues by saying, uh, I understand where you're coming from, but <laughs> it's kind of just a phrase that's thrown around. I've never thought of it like that. I, I really like that. So Fatty, I want to, I want to kind of start, uh, start at the beginning, uh, just really briefly, how, uh, how a kid from Lebanon, uh, his, your journey to America, and, you know, how that brought you to, you know, be testifying before Congress and all of that good stuff. So that initial, that initial transition, can you take me back to that, uh, where you grew up in your journey to the States? Certainly. My father and mother are both Copts, my mother from Alexandria and my dad from Mansoura uh, in the Delta of Egypt. Uh, my dad came from a lower middle class family. His father didn't, his parents didn't read or write. Uh, his father made galabeyas. He was, a, uh, you know, uh, he, that was what he did for people in that part of the country. My dad was uh, uh, removed from school at the age of 12 because of uh, the family needing him to work. And he started working in the mills of Mahalla in Egypt at the age of 12. But he taught me most of what I know because he was a, a servant more than anything else. He used to go in the villages and serve when he was 13, 14, 15, 16, and frankly, till the end of his life when he passed here in Los Angeles. My mother was a French teacher and her father was a French teacher. And uh, she grew up in Egypt and in Ethiopia because her father was the French teacher to the emperor, Haile Selassie. Uh, and so they lived in Ethiopia for a while in the 1920s and 30s. Now, my parents moved from Egypt to Ethiopia and then to Lebanon. And that's where I was born. I was born and raised in Beirut by those the two wonderful parents that have shaped every aspect of who I am today. Uh, Beirut was a beautiful city to grow into with an excellent education system. Um, but Beirut was ravaged by war. Uh, when I was 13, Lebanon entered a, a very, very gruesome uh, civil war of 15 years. Um, and uh, after five years of enduring the war, uh, my parents told me uh, that I need to go. Mm -hmm. so, uh, I came to America alone with a one-way ticket to LA uh, and a little less than $500. It was something like 450 some dollars my dad gave me or he could give me as I was leaving Beirut in a, under a very difficult time. I, there was no airport even. I had to take buses to Syria mm -hmm. from Damascus to come. Uh, when I arrived, my English was very limited. Uh, so Abu Antonius Hanin, the late Abu Antonius Hanin, advised me to study something that never needs a lot of English. And he told me there's this new thing called computer science. Why don't you go study computer science so you never have to speak much, you can sit yeah. in the background and program. <laughs> and I lived in the basement of his church in, uh, in the Eagle Rock, Pasadena area. And I... Uh, I went to school to East Los Angeles College, then to Pasadena City College, 
accumulated good grades that allowed me to get a full scholarship to what is NYU Engineering today in New York. Uh, and I finished my computer science degree there. Um, and Abuna really held my hand throughout this period, supported me, gave me work at night in the church, um, and most of all, uh, showed me uh, an active faith. Abuna was an engineer like me, a scientist, and he had a very active faith. Mm -hmm. and I learned a lot from him as well. Um, in New York, I, uh, I finished my degree. Then I worked at a place called Bell Labs, which is where most technology things have been invented over the last hundred years, you know, from the transistor to the laser. Many, many things were invented there. I was lucky to work there. And they sent me to Stanford. They paid my full way, full scholarship to go to Stanford to do advanced studies in artificial intelligence. In the 1980s, if you were studying artificial intelligence, my parents were worried I'm lacking some natural intelligence. They didn't understand <laughs> what is that field. This is a very new field, but that's what I did. Yeah. So, and the rest is, you know, I don't need to get into right, right. after school, but I will tell you this that's important. Because you asked an important question, you know, how do we how do we achieve things? How do we get from A to B? to see. And I will tell you the ingredients for me were few, but very important. I grew up in a home with abundant love. I never built relationships in my life out of a need to be loved because mm -hmm. I had so much at home from dad and mom and my brothers. And that abundance of love satiates you and gives you the ability to give for the rest of your life. That was one key ingredient. The second key ingredient is came to me from my faith, which my dad and Abun Antonius and many others ingrained in me. Uh, a faith that gives you a spine that makes you stand under any circumstance. I watched my dad uh, with Kleshnikovs pointed to his head when I was 14, when we were caught in, in, a, in a stop in Beirut during the war. Mm -hmm. And these guys asking him, are you a Christian? And all he needed to say is yes. And inevitably they would pull the trigger. Wow. And I was a little boy watching him spine up, put his spine up and say, I am, and I'm proud of it. After you see this, you cannot have a wavering faith. You cannot. Right. And so faith, and then lastly, for me, it's, a, it's, it's learning to be a person of service to others since you were a child. You know, starting in Boy Scouts, where we used to learn, we have to do a service to others every day and write it down. And then in, in our church, a life of service, my father has always been in a life of service. So learning to be a person of service to others was also the third and probably most in, important ingredient that helped me in my professional life as well. 
No, it's, it's quite rare that anyone is, becomes a serial entrepreneur, let alone just found one company and you founded four, correct? Um, would you attribute that kind of, you know, so would you attribute that kind of uh, ambition uh, to the, the things you discussed earlier, the love, uh, the spine of your faith and and also, you know, just the service to others or what prompted you as a young man uh, in America to start your first company? I think that that's pretty brave. It takes a lot of courage. Um, kind of what, what prompted you to do that in 1988, I think it was, right? Indeed. Look, uh, what, what, what those three things are central to everything I do, to being mm -hmm. a father, to being a CEO, to being uh, a person of service, a Sunday school teacher, all these things require those three things. And you can, you can play it in your mind, but right. even to, being a Sunday school teacher, if I'm not filled with the right kind of love that comes from this uncondi unconditional way parents raise their kids, then I couldn't serve those kids in these classes with abundance and give them and so on and so forth. But I'll add something to your question about, you know, what drove you to be the entrepreneur you've become? Two things. The first is I love building teams. It is actually the one thing I love to do the most when I create a company. You know, just imagining the orchestra that will build this company. Right. Who should be there? Who should be in that seat? And you know, the greatest marketing person may be good for this company, but terrible for that company. How do you discern that? How do you learn over time to pick the right people for the right company at the right time? And that, I, I just love to do it. I mean, and I wanted immediately, as soon as I started my first company in 1988, you're right, uh, to do it, to build a great team. And in fact, the people that I brought into my first company at the leadership level in 1988 are still with me today in my company. Wow, so you made the right choices. <laughs> so the two people that I brought then to lead uh -huh. my technology development and my legal and IP protection, they're still with me today. Mm. And in my next company, the people that I added then are with me today and so on and so forth. So we, building teams and building networks of trusted relationships has enabled me um, to build those companies and to grow them and you know, successfully find homes for them at IBM and Oracle and other places mm -hmm. as I went on. So what, what do you look for in a person when you do your hiring, when you interview someone? Uh, how do you know that person's has that quality uh, that you're looking for that because uh, at a certain point resumes and cvs all start to look the same right yeah. i look for three things i look first uh that we share a common set of values if i don't get that it's a problem one of my small little uh, uh, exercises I do when I'm about to give a final offer to somebody, I always make sure I try to invite them out to have a meal with me. Uh, and during the meal, I'm not watching what wine they order. 
Mm -hmm. I'm watching how they treat the waiter or the waitress. Mm -hmm. Because that tells me a lot about the kind of person they are. Could they be a leader someday? Could they treat people in different settings well? So uh, the value system is key because if we don't share the same values, then we're going to have problems very quickly. The second thing I look for is uh, my sense of their discipline and ambition. And those two things are two sides of a coin. There are many people who have a lot of ambition, but no discipline. <laughs> and there are many people who have a lot of discipline, but kind of, you know, are riding along with the company. And they're not contributing to the energy of a company. So especially depending on the level of people I'm hiring, but even across the board, I try to look for people, as I always say, who can fit in the locomotive in the front of the train, not mm -hmm. the back sitting, you know, kind of riding along with everybody. Now, not everybody can be in the locomotive, but that they have the capacity to get to the locomotive at a minimum. So discipline is, is that. It's commitment, it's discipline. And then on the other side of that, I also look for ambition and passion. Uh, because if they don't have that, it's very hard to, I mean, you can incent people and get them to be excited, but if they're not predisposed to be ambitious and passionate people, it's a problem. So that's the second thing I look for. And of course, the third thing I look for is, do they know the subject matter? Do they know it well? Do they know it better than me? So mm -hmm. if I'm hiring someone to lead my, you know, intellectual property area, I want to make sure this person knows far more than me about IP. If I'm hiring somebody who knows who's an HR person, I want to make sure they are experts on what they do. And if they're not, they know how to get the knowledge. So expertise and depth of knowledge is very important. Those are the three things I look for. Mm -hmm. Then there are other aspects unique to a job. Some jobs require creativity. Some jobs require actually much more, you know, uh, like your chief compliance officer needs not be necessarily creative. You want them to be very uh, precise. So there are some additional aspects mm -hmm. and depending on the job. And I've been very fortunate. I mean, I, I have people who've been collaborating with me as I just mentioned to you for over 30 years. And it's not like I rehired them now. They've been with me all those decades and I'm still lucky to have them by my side. Uh, have you ever made a mistake? Like someone you just hired and they just, because how, how can you gauge all those things you're talking about in an interview? I feel like it, unless, unless it's a multi-stage interview and all that stuff, some, some interviews are really elaborate. I feel like a lot of times it comes down to, do I like this person? And are they enthusiastic about the job? Yeah. I've, I've done so many interviews and I feel like uh, when I get callbacks, when I get offers, it, I feel like it comes down to, did I just vibe with the person who interviewed me? And because uh, the credentials are the credentials, right? Um, you don't, you typically don't get called for the interview if you, if you don't meet that initial threshold. Um, there are certain kind of little uh, uh, quirks and things that I've heard interviewers talk about. One of my professors says he'll, he was hiring like high level people. He'd, he'd uh, take them to lunch just like you. And then he'd say, I need to put something in your trunk. And if he found a set of golf clubs in there, he wouldn't hire them. <laughs> so just things like that. <laughs> but um, 
how do you gauge all that in, in, in a limited time? And uh... so I've made many mistakes. Mm -hmm. uh, I must admit, less as I gain experience and with time. Um, yeah. It's very important when interviewing people to be turning off some of your personal emotional things and listening to the people and seeing them in the environment where they need to function rather than seeing them as uh, people who kind of work just with you. Uh, because sometimes I need someone in a position that may not be necessarily my favorite person to spend the day with, but mm -hmm. you need to have certain traits to be in that position. Um, so with time, you refine your antennas. You become a little more uh, refined, you know, in, in looking for traits, for the way they answer questions. Um, I also think that... Uh, we owe it to the people we interview to spend more time than less time. Sometimes we're rushing. We're, and frankly, that messes a lot of people's lives. You know, you move them from a job to another job, and then, oh, my God, two months later, you say, this person didn't know any of this. So I think we have a responsibility toward right. to put ourselves in their shoes. They have families. They have kids. We're asking them to make decisions. Let's also do our part. So we can be, and and I think this is something that many people don't do. The focus is on what's important for me, what's important for my company, how can I get the best person at the best possible salary level, versus thinking that plus, how do I make sure that this person makes a move that will lift them and lift their families and lead them to better places. And mm. by the way, people feel that when you're interviewing them. If mm. they, so I've learned over time to also uh, focus on that. And it's paid off beautifully. All right. Okay. So you're, you're actually looking at it from both ways, whether the person's going to fit in the company. You're not just looking at it in a selfish way, but whether the company is going to benefit the person and their family. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So you've gotten to the point where you're, you're hiring all these people, you're creating these teams, you've, you've reached the C-suite. Um, do you ever, do you ever struggle with like uh, imposter syndrome? Like along the way, did you ever like just find yourself, you know, at the head of this company and think like, I'm in over my head and how do you deal with that? Cause I think it's a, a, th a thing, a lot of professionals struggle with. Um, I know in the legal field, I hear it all the time uh, mm -hmm. where lawyers are like, young lawyers are just like uh, I, I don't know what I'm doing and they, they, they just start beating themselves up how, how did you deal with that if you ever experienced it it is an excellent question because I know that many people suffer from that questioning themselves mm -hmm. um, and I will admit that there was a part of my career I did. Um, and I've switched my careers. You know, I started as a scientist, then I became a CEO. Then I became, frankly, at ICANN, this was a public policy and a public role, completely new, completely different. And now, again, for the fourth time, I'm in a new career. I'm in an investment career. You know, I only four years ago, I used to spend the evenings reading 
you know, Wikipedia to keep up and understand everything going on in my new career. Mm -hmm. So switching careers was very helpful for me to, uh, frankly, to develop some intellectual humility, to enter a new field when you're 50, 52, 53, and start all over. I remember going to the office and there were 22-year-olds who knew far more than me and figuring yeah. out how to really learn again. Mm -hmm. I think is a, is a fantastic exercise to keep you away from constantly thinking, you know, I'm not good enough, I need to do better. Yeah, I know I'm not good enough. I wake up every day and I say, I need to do better at what I do, learn again, mm -hmm. start again. Now, my mother just turned 95, but when she was 91, she went back to college. Wow. <laughs> she said, I, do, I, I know how to draw, but I'm not good. I'm going to go back and learn pastel painting at 91. So, um, and that she could do that because she was clear that she needs to grow and still learn. So I'll finish answering the question by saying the following. The way I cured this fear of I'm not good enough, am I really up to the task, was to never actually think that I'm that good, but to always think that I'm on the way to get good and I have to work harder all the time to improve myself. Um, that's been my little secret way of never falling into, <gasps> am I good enough? The other thing, and uh, it's the other side of that coin, is when you really do a lot of what you do every day with the others in mind, then it's less about you and you think less about whether you're good enough. So if you're doing the work and thinking, how do I help this customer? How do I put this vendor at ease about you know, finishing their supply chain uh, work that they're behind. Mm -hmm. How do I help this employee, you know, lift their knowledge in that area? How do I help? If you are thinking that what you do is at the service of others, it actually relieves the pressure people feel personally about how they're performing. Right. And I think uh, People who feel imposter syndrome, I think, tend to exaggerate in their own heads uh, the perceptions of other people, um, of them being like inferior in some way. When I, I don't think it's it's happening as much as we think. And um, one way I deal with it, which uh, may be stupid, is just you know when I I just look around and I'm like you know you know, that guy's not so good at his job either. I mean, he's still doing it. He's successful. Um, there's plenty of examples of people who are way underqualified um, and who hold a very, very senior positions. I won't give any examples, but um, <laughs> but yeah. I, I, I'm sure you can attest to that too. And you know, having been many, many places and companies. Um, yeah. So you're working in the tech space for several decades. Um, different roles and then you then you completely switch to this public figure that you talk about as president and CEO of ICANN. How does that happen? And, and for people who are listening and don't know what ICANN is, uh, can you tell them, can you just briefly explain what ICANN is? Uh, ICANN is the institution that has a responsibility to 
uh, administer and govern the core resources of the internet for the whole world. So the internet is not a single network, as most of you know, the internet is tens of thousands of networks, but the way they all look like one internet, it's because of certain resources that make it look like one network. And those unique identifying resources are under generally the administrative control of this institution mm -hmm. was created in the late 90s by the US government. And it has control over a number of things that are very critical to the continued operation of the internet as we know it. Uh, in the early in 2012, 2013, those institutions were under enormous pressure because other countries and other governments wanted to share the control of those institutions. And at the time, the US had a unique role in them. Mm -hmm. And I was invited to come in and spend some time at the helm of these, this institution and see if I can bring together the world on a common way to govern uh, the affairs of the internet and these unique resources that are very critical and very sensitive to the operation of the internet for the whole world. So that's, that's why. Can you share like more specifically, like how do you get tapped for something like that? Is this just like, uh, you know, you were out golfing one day and, and someone said, hey, I mean, I, I don't imagine it's like something you apply for uh, <laughs> online, right? Uh, uh, how does something like that happen? The, the, the organization is run by a very sophisticated board of directors, mm -hmm. many, many people from the technology space, the policy space, and other business and governmental kind of backgrounds. Uh, they issued a global search for the right person to do this. Uh, at the time of my, uh, uh, my induction into that role, there was... I think 120 some applicants that included, you know, some public figures, some CEO mm -hmm. people. And that process, which included a lot of input from a lot of places, took a right. year. Uh, and I was the selectee. Okay. But it involved, I mean, it involved so many steps I can get into. Right, right, right. I'll tell you one of them that was. You asked me earlier, have I ever been, you know, in front of an audience and feeling a little bit kind of worried? Uh, one of the many steps in that process involved me being in a very grand ballroom in Paris uh, in front of about 25, 30 people seated in a U. Mm -hmm. I was seated at the head of that U on my own on a table. And they asked me some pretty intense questions. I can't remember, but it had to be at least four hours. Well, um, and these were very, very knowledgeable people. Uh, these are, you know, great moments of growth. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was, again, very fortunate. And I'll tell you one last thing about that process that I always uh, cherish. When I was selected, there was a second person 
in the selection process who was the second person in line, let's say, and there was a third person in line. And when they told me I am the selectee, I'm the one they want, I had some things happen in my business in the year since that process started that prevented me from joining. Mm. I couldn't. So I responded after all of this and I said, listen, I'm terribly sorry, but I, I won't be able to take that role uh, because things developed in my business. And they said, and I said, and you have a second and a third person, so it shouldn't be a problem. You know, it's not like mm -hmm. you have to start from scratch, call the second person, yeah. call the third person. Anyway, they, they called them back and then a month later, they called me back. They said, no, 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 we still want you to take the job. <laughs> Anyways, I end up delaying them six months. They give me the job, I start. Uh -huh. And on the first day on the job, now I'm the president CEO running this big institution. I asked, who were the second and third? Mm -hmm. I didn't know who they are. And they said, well, we, we, we kind of can't tell you because it's a bit delicate and right. take, your, take their permission, but I really need to talk to them. Mm -hmm. so took their permission. And the first thing I did is I hired both of them. Wow. I brought them on board. I brought them on board and we became very close. They were wonderful people. In fact, both of them complimented me immensely. They knew more than me in certain areas. One of them was Egyptian and the other one was a British lady. And I was just the luckiest that they agreed. And we've worked together for years at ICANN. Why, why'd you do that? I, I'd imagine some people wouldn't want uh, uh, those who were rivaling for the, <laughs> the top position to be, you know, right there, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> arm's length away. I mean, to be frank with you, I felt mm -hmm. uh, that they would be great if they went through the year process and right. 100 plus people and they were right up there. They must be superb people. Right. They were already vetted for you. They, they, vetted, they loved right. the organization. The organization loved them. Mm -hmm. And yes, maybe. And in fact, some people called me and said, are you nuts? <laughs> You're hiring your competition. And I said, yeah. Nicely. I think, you know, uh, if, if I can create an environment where they're respected and they feel that I treat them, you know, as, as equals and I could be first amongst equals, but we're all equals. Mm -hmm. uh, and they, they joined me and I, I never looked back. It was a fantastic decision. And they helped me become a much better president CEO. So you went through what sounds like a long, grueling kind of process to get this position which tells me you must have really wanted it. Why, why did you really want, why did you really want this role? I, I actually, you know, I frankly, uh, this is a little known fact, but I didn't even apply. Uh, uh -huh. Mine put my name in because he told uh, ICANN at the time that he knows me and he knows I'll be perfect for the job. Mm. So he put my name and informed me later. <laughs> <laughs> Good friend. <laughs> I, I told him, fine, uh, you know, I have a business and I'm running it, but I'll, I'll indulge the process. And then I got some calls from places, different places I can discuss, but basically that encouraged me to, to carry on with this. And I'm, I'm glad I did. Actually, I'm glad I did. I, I can has been a, a very enriching experience for me. And I learned a lot from it, a lot of, uh, of my talent and my network. 
was used well and I've increased my assets and learning immensely at ICANN. I, mean, I was dealing with things that no typical engineer or CEO would deal with, uh, meeting with you know, presidents of countries and in, uh, heads of large institutions like the OECD and others, the IMF, and discussing with them the, the importance of what we're doing and getting their support. Uh, these were remarkably important things. And as a result, as you mentioned earlier, I ended up being involved in the World Economic Forum. I ended up being involved with the UN Secretary General. I, you know, I became a fellow at Harvard and Oxford. All of this was a result of my ICANN years. Uh, so I'm very, very grateful for those years. Did you know entering the role that there was this uh, issue you alluded to earlier where potentially the oneness of the internet was going to be fractured? Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, it was, it's so, I'm so glad you asked this, Andrew, because I, I believe that the oneness of people and the oneness of the world uh, is a very, very important thing for my, my faith and where I come from. There's so many things that divide us, and there's so little that brings us together. Good or bad, the internet does this. Uh, I had the, the very, very, very special privilege of meeting with Pope Francis one-on-one -on -one recently to discuss this and to discuss some of those things. And he, uh, once again, you know, just with his wisdom, uh, uh, sees the, 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 what this internet brings to unite us as people and what it obviously brings to divide us. But I was very driven by this mission that keeping the internet together as a unifying platform, while sometimes leading to unforeseen things or things that hurt. But I must say that on, on, on balance, the internet has been a tool for many people to advance their lives and to lead more dignified lives and to have access to opportunities and knowledge that would have been impossible for them to have. Right. And I'm very grateful that I had a very, very, very tiny role for a few years to ensure that the internet did not get broken up and fragmented. Yeah, well, I wanna explore that. Um... I saw in a TED Tech interview that you did a few years ago, um, you were talking about how the powers uh, shifting from nation states to corporations. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's evident to anyone now, um, maybe not a few years ago, certainly not before then. You also made the point that you thought at the time that uh, you were hopeful at least that the power would shift to the citizen. Do you still think that, that that's the case or have you, have you changed your position on that? No, I have not. Mm -hmm. And just to maybe put a nuance on what I, what I said then, I do believe that we've lived last century in a world where governments had enormous say in how the world worked and how rules were made and how people lived within the law. I think that the internet has created a transnational layer 
that lives above the national level that enables companies that control this layer to have an outsized role. Mm -hmm. And we've seen those companies take that role and sometimes uh, abuse it and sometimes respect it. We've seen both. Right. Um, and what I was contending uh, and proposing at the time was that if I want to really look at who should be at the table when it comes to the governance of those matters, that it should be governments should have a seat at the table, companies should have a seat at the table, but so do we as citizens. We need to have a seat at the table. We, in fact, I think are necessary in this trilateral relationship in order to create balance between the power of governments and the growing power of businesses. Now, it's very hard for citizens to have a seat at the table because who's right. <laughs> who will be invited? There's billions of us. Right. And how do you structure a role for the citizen to sit at the same table as business and governments? And I, frankly, when I was at the World Economic Forum, that was one of the things I spent quite a bit of time conveying to the leadership there, that uh, whilst the World Economic Forum uh, you know, brings mostly businesses and the governments as well to the table, that they were missing that third leg, the, the, the importance of the voice of the people, uh, which can be called civil society, it can be called different things, but it needs to be at the table. Uh, and I do think that each of us, as I mentioned in that TED talk, have a responsibility to do our little bit of making sure our voice is heard. Because businesses listen to their customers at the end of the day. Businesses listen to the consumer, otherwise they can't thrive. Yeah. That's, that's what I was concerned I think a cynical person might say that... Uh... You know the people running the World Economic Forum, your politicians. These are the elites. They're they're not. They know what's their from their point of view. They know what's best for the citizen. They don't need them to have a seat at the table. And I think people point to things like, uh, you know, the World Economic Forum saying, you know, you'll own nothing and be happy. You know, in 2030 and things like that, as if uh, their influence uh, on the future of society, um, you know. Yeah, is 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 already predetermined, right? Yeah. So, look, uh, I'll, I'll just, what do you say to those people? Yeah, I. Uh, the World Economic Forum is necessary, but not sufficient. It's a necessary venue because when you close off those leaders of the world those leaders of businesses, and frankly, a fair number of heads of civil society groups, Human Rights Watch and others are all present. I think they need this dialogue between them in these kind of halls of Davos to at least be able to, besides making deals and doing all the other things they do, but mm -hmm. at least have some direct dialogue and facing of the issues in the absence of some of the uh, the lights and the and the media, and they do do that. Uh, the last CEO of 
I'll mention him by name because very sadly, Pierre is his, Pierre Nanterre, the last CEO of Accenture, uh, one of the largest consulting companies in the world. Pierre passed away suddenly um, recently. But Pierre, I still his voice is still in my head from mm -hmm. some private meetings we were having in Davos and how he stood up and pounded his hand on the table saying, we as tech CEOs are not embracing our full responsibility towards the people we serve. And he engaged other CEOs and got them to be uh, more focused on some key uh, points. So I, I do think some good comes out of that, uh, of the freedom to have that level of discussion with people who are you know, at, in powerful positions. The problem becomes when this group in Davos becomes insular and does not listen to the people outside. Mm -hmm. That's what, in a way, Pierre was telling them that day. We must listen to the people outside. They are screaming of inequality. They're screaming of, uh, this is before ESG became what it is today. They're screaming of issues of governance and environmental impact. And we're not paying attention to these things. I really do believe there is a place for this meeting. It's not a perfect gathering. Uh, it needs to uh, uh, evolve, but it has a place and it has a purpose. Uh, and I tried my best when I was there for a number of years uh, to, to do my part, you know, in bringing uh, some level of uh, uh, listening and, and responsibility uh, that I had, but also other people had uh, in our affairs. So um, I understand the criticism. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I think I think people realistically are concerned that you know your big tech CEOs. You know, you can think of the the big three or four: uh, Apple, Google, uh, Facebook, Amazon. Um, are more influential than any head of any state. Um, and they do go to these uh, congressional hearings and they give all the polite answers, but it, it, it seems, I think it seems uh, f for a lot of, you know, average, average citizens to be a kind of a dog and pony show a little bit. Um, it is, and some of those people dodge their responsibilities right. by, by simply saying, well, we went and answered the questions or uh, I, I'm going to call out some of them for something I'm hearing a lot lately. Oh, come and regulate us. Uh -huh. Come and regulate us. I mean, I'm sorry, but this is nonsense. And this is ducking your responsibility. Yes, you should work with governments to translate your policies into uh, actual laws or regulations. But don't just sit back and say, come and regulate me. And by the way, they say that. And at the same time, they hire a thousand lobbyists <laughs> in Washington right. to make sure that it goes their way. Right, right. Versus thinking, what is my responsibility? You know, when, when as you know, in a private conversation I, ha I was having with a very you know, prominent person from the religious world, he was telling me, I mean, how could we sit by when teenage girls are killing themselves because of social media? Mm -hmm. they're killing themselves the day i was visiting with this particular person i'll just leave this private i mean in in the country where he was two girls had killed themselves and he asked me he said 
What is our responsibility? How could we wash our hands completely? I mean, we can't take all the responsibility as tech CEOs, but we have to have a proactive approach that may, yes, expose some of our role into creating all of that. But if we're responsible, there will be, we will be a better business and people will invest more in us and people will value our shares better. We'll be more valuable to the world than if we duck and say, come and regulate us. That's the answer. So Fadi, with that, I'm, I'm, uh, I think, I don't know if they all share your, uh, your level of ethics and moral responsibility. So at the end of the day, it comes down to whether they have any competition, whether there's any alternatives. And it seems like at this point uh, in certain spheres, they're just essentially monopolies. So while I, while I agree, I think the oneness of the internet lowers the barrier of entry for a lot of people. Anyone can just hop online, start, start an online store and you know make a couple thousand side business. Um, on the flip side, uh, you know, Amazon will get all your data from that business and now they're just going to knock you off and, you know, you're going to have to be forced to reduce your costs and, you know, you're out of business. So there's kind of, a, I feel like a delicate balance there. Um, how do you, how do we navigate that going forward? Yeah, I think you ask again, a very astute question and I'll take mm -hmm. you back to my answer earlier after that TED talk. You know, we cannot simply count on the company doing the right thing. Having said this, this does not abdicate the company CEOs from attempting to do the right thing. So all I was saying is they have a responsibility. Governments have a responsibility. If they say, oh my God, this is moving so fast. I can't keep up with these companies. They're so powerful. Then that's also wrong. Governments mm -hmm. have an important role to play. And it doesn't have to be simply regulatory. At a minimum, it could be exposing the facts and making sure the public understands what a company is doing at a minimum. Then they could also go forward beyond that and set up rules, regulations, and laws as necessary. So I think government should play their role. I think companies also should play their role. And then when neither gets us there, we need the citizen, the consumer, the customer, the civil society activists to be at the table screaming at the top of their lungs or screaming, as we always say, with their customer dollars, with their subscriptions. You know, if, if all of us in one day decided to stop our subscriptions to one or the other tech company, let me tell you, they will listen. You know, I'm I'm not going to hold my breath on that. I think, I think uh, with uh, honestly, with this kind of generation, I think uh, they'd rather endure so much than give up a Netflix subscription. It's sad to say, but I think uh, people don't vote with their feet as much anymore because I think they feel a little bit hopeless. Like, what I'm, what am I going to do? It's not going to change anything. Um, I feel like that kind of sense of. Um, impact has been greatly diminished because we've seen a lot of examples of it. We've seen uh, people try to do that and they've essentially been castigated, right, from society. Um, so it's, it's, a tough, it's a tough road to go to. And I think it's a, a huge burden to put on the citizenry. And I, I agree with you, though. I think 
uh, the state needs to step up in those in those areas um, uh, to lead the way. And also, you know, one thing you're doing with your company uh, uh, is you're investing in an ethical way, right? So tell us a little bit about Ethos Capital and what what you guys are doing there. Ethos Capital is an investment firm uh, that has, from the beginning, our first employee we hired is a chief purpose officer. And the idea would be that we invest. We want to be in the top quartile of investors. We are capitalists. We want to maximize the profits and the returns to our investors. That is what we exist to do, mm -hmm. responsibility. But we believe that that can be done with principles, with values uh, that are clear and implemented with integrity and with responsibility. So we set those values and guardrails uh, and we live by them. And every person we hire, we hire this person with an understanding that they will live within those. Mm -hmm. Every investor who gives us money to fill our fund understands those things with us. So we're clear with the uh, investors who give mm -hmm. us funds. We're clear with the team that we built. And we're clear with the companies we invest in that those guardrails will be respected. So for example, uh, and I won't name names, but you know, an opportunity came to, for example, uh, to invest in a company that helps people manage their 401k plans after they leave their employer. Mm -hmm. uh, but then we found out that that company is charging those uh, 401k holders an obscene amount of money to manage their 401k every year. And most of these were not sophisticated employees who had just left their company. And they were told, oh, this third party can manage your 401k plan. And then if they had three, four, five thousand dollars in that plan, after a few years, it disappeared. Wow. <laughs> so uh, the company was very, very profitable, very successful. They were managing uh -huh. 401k plans for people leaving some of the largest Fortune 500 companies in this country. Mm -hmm. And even though on an Excel sheet, they looked like an amazing investment uh, on an ethos uh, uh, guardrail system, the answer is no, we're going to pass on that company uh, because that's not a place we want to put our money. So some of, some of these things are real. We're facing them every day. Uh, we, we had another company that dealt with opioid victims, but that company's growth plan was entirely based on the growth of opioid usage. Mm. Great company, family owned, big business. Right. Not kind for, of, uh, yeah, perverse in, <laughs> perverse not, a little bit, yeah. Not for ethos capital. So uh, another guardrail that I'm interested in, and I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts is uh, with all these technology companies is data privacy. That's, that's one thing going forward that just, you know, if I download any app and once I log into anything, I mean, I'm not sharing any data. I'm like, I'm the guy who clicks everything off. I just don't like it. Uh, what do you, what do you, what do you look for in companies and, and, you know, what do you think is the responsible thing for companies to do, technology companies who have all this data? 
we are very, very focused on this issue because mm -hmm. uh, our investment firm only invests in information services companies. So we are sitting with companies that have a lot of data, collecting a lot of data, managing a lot of data, distributing data, analyzing data. It's data centric. And therefore, our clarity on data policies is uh, one of the key things in our guardrails. Um, we are looking at one company now that has a very, very big service in 1.8 million American homes and uh, high-end homes, and there's a lot of data being collected. Uh, and it's very easy to come up with 20 new business plans on how to use that data and monetize it. Mm -hmm. And so we said, yeah, fine, we'll look at that. But there has to be some ground rules. Uh, the simplest ground rule is, does uh, the provider of data know that you're collecting this data? Are you transparent enough to tell them as part of the service I'm giving you, I'm collecting A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Mm -hmm. And of those, I must have the first four because without them, I can't service you. And those others I collect, you know, because I'm happen to be there and I catch, I catch this data, I collect this data. Are we clear with those customers that we do? And do we have their permission uh, as part of the service to, to collect the non-essential data? So this is the most basic. But then beyond that, if we are intending to use the data, then we need to be transparent of how we plan to use it. Uh, and if we use it, are we using it, you know, obfuscating any personal data? Um, and uh, all those things, it's transparency. It's more than anything else. It's transparency and clarity. Uh, and then let the customer decide. And so when we buy these businesses, we make this a precondition of our engagement. Otherwise, it's very complicated to do it later. I want, I want to kind of like get you to look in your crystal ball and see like uh, where this is going to go in the future. Uh, I personally think eventually like we're just going to have no, there's going to be no privacy at all. Um, and I see small things like, for example, um, Apple, uh, I think, started doing this new thing where they allow where they're looking, sorting through your photos to look for, I think, uh, inappropriate underage content um, to report that to the authorities. I think that's something Apple's never done before. Um, and while, you know, that's a noble, that's a noble thing, obviously, um, kind of seems like a slippery slope to me. Um, it is. And do in you fact, think they stopped. they stopped, by the way. Oh, they stopped? Okay. Not because they okay. got a lot of frankly, uh, uh, what I would call reasonable criticism. Okay, and that, that's a citizenry you're talking about. Child yeah. pornography, but more about the slippery slope. So you're spot on. And right. uh, but that's, that's now. Um, do you think like 10, 20, 30 years from now, you're going to be able to opt out or it's just going to be like, their only promise to you is that only we're going to have it and we're going to only use it if you're doing something bad, do you think we're going to get there? Like digital IDs uh, and then just our data, everything's going to be collected. We already have listening devices in our homes with all these smart technology. 
where eventually there is no privacy and, and the only promise we get from, from the companies is uh, we're only going to use this if you act bad. And then now it's a question of, you know, who's defining what act bad is, right? That, that becomes the issue. So here's the bad news I'm going to give you. Mm -hmm. I think the concept of privacy that many of us have in our head is dead. There is no such thing mm -hmm. as a cone of silence or of a place where you are. It's very hard. If you truly understand how many satellites are up there with sensors, if you truly grasp the number one trillion IoT devices by 2030, and just to give you a sense, today we're at 30 billion. 30 billion to a trillion, that's how many things surrounding us will be connected to the internet. That's how many things within us will be connected to the internet. Uh, my mom that I mentioned before was 95. Her doctor in Cedar sinai can adjust her heart rate from his iPhone. Well, how's that? She has a, she yeah. has a, has a motor. Oh, okay, gotcha. He remotely wow. can do that. So... In, in 10 years, you know, there will be many people with things inside of them that will mm -hmm. and around us. You know, you remember not too long ago when the, when the Nest thermostat was like an amazing thing connected to the internet. Yeah. <laughs> Everything in our house, all the new houses being built are filled with sensors. Everything from your sprinkler head to your doorbell to every every part of your infrastructure, the, everything will be connected to the internet and to the cameras. Five years ago, the average number of cameras in homes was less than one. One, there aren't many cameras in homes. Today, the average is closer to eight cameras in homes. Lots of cameras, watching your dog, watching your house, watching everything. Mm -hmm. so, uh, this is the world we're living in now. Drones everywhere, satellites everywhere. There are now uh, satellites with new technologies. Uh, a friend of mine asked me to check a land in Senegal. I called another friend of mine in the Bay Area who has a bunch of satellites. And he was able to get me details on this land that <laughs> not even imagine. Yeah. Uh, they can even check the content of the soil now from the sky because of the new hyper uh, spectrum uh, capabilities in satellites. I mean, it's, so I think, I hate to give you this news if you didn't have it <laughs> before, but the idea that I'm gonna be private. Right. So what we need to start thinking of is how do I manage my data? And what say do I have and how my data is collected and used? And I need government help with that. I need company help with that. And I need to be able to voice that. Um, so there are many great, very smart people right now engaged in this area of thinking, how do you then create a new framework 
and blockchains and new databases that are being created is one way to actually protect data and avoid its mutability. So there's all kinds of things happening in that space. But I think we need to get out of the idea of, I wanna be all right. to being, how am I managing my data and how am I sharing it and who sees it to do what with it? That's what we need to get to now, rather mm -hmm. than thinking, I'm gonna say no to everything because it doesn't work. They, 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 there's so many ways for you to be detected, tracked, managed, uh, some of which you know, some of which you don't know. Uh, thanks for the bad news. Uh, so I want to end on this. Uh, I've kept you way longer than I promised. Um, two things. One, for that, for that next generation, for this generation that's coming of tech leaders, entrepreneurs who are going to be managing our data, um, what's your message to them? And how do we instill in them this sense of responsibility not to abuse the powers you know, that they have? And then for, for us as Christians who do believe that there is some merit, some good in disconnecting and kind of retreating from the world and taking those fasting periods to contemplate on God and God alone and you know, flourish in our spiritual life. How do we do that in this rapidly uh, technologically... <laughs> Uh, filled world where it seems harder and harder every day to disconnect, let alone put our phone down for five seconds. I understand. I'll answer you two questions separately, obviously. On the first one, I think that any entrepreneur involved in a company that is collecting data, managing data, distributing data, whatever they're doing with data, needs to have a, a personal commitment that they write down as to what is their policy, their personal commitment to a policy. Mm -hmm. uh, and make sure that everyone at their company involved in this subscribes to that policy from day one, including their investors who may at some point want them to do things with that data that cross those guardrails. So they need to be clear from the beginning. And if they need help with that, there are many good institutions that have created corporate data policies that are responsible and ethical. So they need to take that oath. The second thing they should do is unite with other CEOs that are like them, like-minded, who are also like them, uh, you know, uh, putting those guardrails and living by them. And the third thing they should do is they should uh, engage in public fora with the government and other uh, powers. That's where things like Davos and other become important, you know, uh, going to Aspen, speaking to authority with conviction is important and sharing our views on this. We cannot hide. We need to stand on top of the hill and scream what we believe in and do it faithfully and with humility. In terms of your second point, Disconnecting is actually very easy to do. Uh, it starts, frankly, for me, I'll speak to you personally. It starts with my morning routine. You know, uh, what do you do when you first get up? You know, do you, do you reach out to your iPhone or your smartphone? Or, uh, you know, do you take a little bit of time 
um, to connect to what really matters. It's, so it's small steps. It doesn't have to be grand. We don't need to be dropped by helicopter on Mount Athos to find that peace. I've done, I've done these things too. And I went to, as I mentioned to you, the, 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 the monastery in, in, in France of, of uh, Trappist monks. I've done these things too. But you know, it starts with a daily routine where right. we silence everything and we take the time. It's very important. Um, and we should leave behind those things a little bit once in a while. We can live without them. Um, it's okay. You know, uh, I, uh, I did something small that actually works a lot for me. Uh, I got myself uh, an, an Apple Watch with a phone. Uh, and so there are parts of my week where I actually don't carry my phone. Because if the phone is with me, I'm always checking things. But even though I do get things on my watch, but it's more complex to, to engage with the watch, I just have it in case there's an emergency, somebody needs to call me, my mother, my family. But otherwise, find the simple ways that allow you to clear your mind and to be, uh, you know, to be at peace. Um, and it's possible. It's not impossible. And the last tip I'll give you, which works very well for me and my wife, is nature. The good mm -hmm. news about hiking and going into nature is that often there's no signal. <laughs> so <laughs> we're forced to leave the phone behind anyway. Yeah. With, uh, with the beautiful parks we have in this country and the, the chance we have to go to national parks and, and enjoy the beauty of, of, this, of this land. Thanks so much, Fedi. Uh, that, that was a great way to end this. I appreciate your time again. I'm delighted to have uh, spent the time with you. And I, ho I hope that uh, some of the thoughts we shared would be you know, helpful to others on their journey. But thank you for your time. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you.